talking today about when greed can rob us of Jesus. And we're still in the book of Mark. We're getting back into there, Mark chapter 10. But I got to ask you a question to get us into the topic today. Can you think of a time when you got pretty greedy for something? I remember a time. I, I will prime the pump in case you haven't thought of something yet. I remember that my mother had bought this jar of maraschino cherries. They were supposed to be used sparingly because you're supposed to put one on top of an ice cream sundae. And we used to be able to be treated to something like a banana split or a homemade sundae sometimes. And I watched very carefully from behind the counter where my mother put those maraschino cherries. And when she was in the other room working in her study one day, I found something to climb up on and I got those maraschino cherries. And do you think that I ate just one or two or three of those maraschino cherries? <laughs> no. I ate the whole stinking jar. <laughs> and you can imagine, as sweet as they were, what that might have done. It propelled me into some things that I can't describe for you today. And it robbed me of something. For one thing, it robbed me of my appetite for supper. And unfortunately, it kind of put me off of maraschino cherries for a long time after that. You can get too much of a good thing, let me tell you. Sometimes our greed can rob us of other good things because we just want something so badly and we get too much of it and it robs us of something else that's even more valuable. And that's kind of where we're going today, but with a guy who shows up asking Jesus a question. And Jesus' response to him shocks not only the man, but also his disciples that are learning from these interactions that Jesus has with folks. So let's read this passage, Mark 10, 17 through 27. As Jesus was starting out on his way, and in the New Living Translation it tells us where from, on his way to Jerusalem, remember we're coming back down from Galilee and he's heading toward Jerusalem, this is heading toward the end of his ministry on earth. A man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, Good teacher, or good rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And one of the translations picks up on the fact that he's saying, What else must I do? That's implied. Verse 18, Why do you call me good? Jesus asks. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your mother and father. Well, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell your possessions, all of them, and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad or grieved in his heart, for he had many possessions. So Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astounded at this. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. And that's when we could cue up, Waymaker, miracle, (laughs) because everything is possible with God. Well, what we see in this interaction with this man is that he's actually playing with two concepts in one, and we might miss it because we think only about the material wealth, but there's two kinds of wealth that has to do with this guy and his question about Jesus. What else must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? There's moral wealth as well as material wealth. And we need to look at that because that plays in pretty deeply to Jesus' question and to the mindset of the people and what it meant to them back then and how we tend to latch on to some of these same concepts and that they still live on even though they're misperceptions about how God works and how religion works. Jesus' list of commandments covers the basis of moral wealth. He gives them some don'ts. You know, don't murder. Well, duh, we should all know that. You shouldn't kill other people. That's not nice. Adultery, yeah, not a good one. Theft, you shouldn't steal other people's stuff. False testimony, yeah, that's bad. Cheating, don't do that. And then he gives one, you ought to do this thing, one of the do's, which is honor your father and mother. Now, people who knew this guy would probably describe him, if you were to ask him, if you were to go go door to door and knock on people's houses and say, do you know this rich young ruler? And they go, oh yeah, he's a pillar of the community. We know him really well. Well, what... uh, What would you use to describe his character? Oh, well, he's an upright man. He's a pillar. I mean, he's strong. He gives to all the charities. He's kept all these commandments since he was young. That's probably how people saw him and how they would describe him. And he possessed great wealth. And especially back then, as it still happens some today, people connected the two, the moral wealth and the material wealth. If you were material Uh, materially wealthy, if you had lots and lots of money and possessions, it was sort of implied, oh, well, you must be morally wealthy too because God must be blessing you. If you've got all this opulence, then clearly God loves you a lot and you must have done something right and so he's poured this blessing out upon you. So there's often this connection to be fair and I have to also be fair with us today. There is a connection, I think, in living good lifestyles in terms of high moral standards, because if you get somebody who shows up on the job and they don't cheat, they don't rob their employer, they put in a full day's work for a full day's wage, they don't take stuff home that doesn't belong to them, they're going to do better than other people who don't do that stuff, right? So in that regard, you can expect that people would probably do better if they obey the commandments. So that's true. But people connected these two so strongly that they almost brought something into it that suggests that God rewards that very, very tightly. Uh, There's a song in The Sound of Music, by the way, which actually conveys this thought. And I didn't think about it the first 20 times that I saw the movie. (laughs) And to be fair, I love the song and I love the movie. Uh, At age six, I had a crush on the lead person on there. She sang so nicely. And The Sound of Music, there's this song, it's called Something Good. It's written by Richard Rogers, and we wouldn't think of it as conveying this concept, but this is exactly the concept that's going on back here in first century Palestine, and it's something that people still do today. I'll sing one line, and I bet you can sing the second line that comes after that. 
So somewhere in my youth or childhood, remember it? I must have done something good. Oh, very nice. You've seen the movie a couple of times, I have a feeling. Well done, nicely done. So if you think about it, what Maria is singing so sweetly is, I guess I deserve this. (laughs) And we think, wait, what? It's as though she's saying, I must have done something so morally excellent in my childhood when I was younger to have earned the reward of this opulence that this man who loves me is going to be bestowing upon me, this wealthy man who loves me. He's going to shower all these riches upon me. I must have done something good. And in fact, she juxtaposes that, according to the lyrics, with something and says, oh, uh, in my wicked childhood. Now, she's a nun. And yet she's talking about her wicked childhood. But we also know that, you know, how do you solve a problem like Maria? She was breaking the rules of nunnery all the time, apparently. She had a hard time living by these rules. And so in her mind, she's thinking of this wickedness that she's done. And yet, despite her wicked childhood, which I'm sure is all relative, she must have done something along the way good enough that God is somehow rewarding her now at this point in her life. Isn't that what this guy is saying to Jesus? Isn't that what the people thought about this wealth and moral wealth as well? It's prevalent. It still latches onto people today. In fact, I just have to call this out. The health wealth gospel that's being preached all over the world today is just not biblical. It's just not. So, we probably didn't think of these things the first time we watched it, but that idea has been conveyed for a long time, still is. But the opposite is also true, and this is where it gets really convoluted. If something bad happens to a good person and they're morally wealthy, let's say a hurricane comes through and they own a palace over on Sanibel Island just off the coast of Florida, and a hurricane just messes up their house something big time, and their car is in a tree, and all of his dogs and cats died in the storm and terrible things happened to him. You know, he's like a modern-day Job. Then some people might say, "Uh uh-oh, what would be the cause of that? Oh, well, he must have done something bad for that to have happened. God must be not smiling on him anymore. That's kind of their mindset. And I've actually had conversations with people who have lost loved ones, and they go to that place. They say, oh, what did I do that God's punishing me for this? People still think that. And I'm here to tell you, don't. (laughs) Don't think that because they're not connected that way. I think that one of the first times I actually started to understand that there are motives that can be conflicting with each other and we want to be pure in our motives for when we do something, especially if we're doing something good. And yet we also know that there are some impure motives that can creep in and we're not so altruistic as we might think sometimes. The first time I recognized that was in third grade. Had a really nice teacher, I liked her a lot. We had a bake sale to raise money for our class. And I love bake sales because I love food, especially desserts. And one of the foods that was being presented there was homemade uh, peanut brittle. And this morning, Mike Howell, when I told him that I had a peanut brittle analogy in my sermon today, thought of our dear friend Peggy Spinner God rest her soul, she's in heaven now, enjoying all the sights and smells without triggering any kinds of upper respiratory problems, and she's probably eaten all the peanut brittle she can get. And that's something that I've loved since a kid, and I saw this homemade tray of peanut brittle for sale. So it was like three pieces for a quarter, something like that. Inflation, you know. And so I asked my mom and dad if I could have a quarter to buy peanut brittle. They said yes, it was for a good cause after all. 
sponsored by your National Dental Association. <laughs> and I walked up and I said to my teacher, whom I really liked, uh, I would like three pieces of peanut brittle, please. And she goes, okay, good. Go ahead and just pick out your three pieces. Now, here's where the motive of conflict comes in. I really love peanut brittle. And there were three very large pieces there. So my selfish, fleshly desire wanted to reach in and grab the three biggest pieces, which made up about 30% of the whole tray. And I wanted to grab those three pieces. But I also wanted my teacher to think well of me. I wanted her to think of me as this upright, upstanding, morally pure young man who always made the right choices. I wanted to be the humblest in the class. And so I chose the three tiniest pieces of peanut brittle. And sure enough, it worked like a charm. She goes, oh, that's so kind of you. And I thought, yes. She said, but you can get bigger pieces than that. Here, let me help. And so she picked out three medium-sized pieces that would be fair. And I thought, after that incident, it kind of worked its way into my mind a little bit. I thought, you know, I came across looking real good in that interaction, but I know deep in my heart that wasn't totally pure. There is other stuff working within me that can cause me to do things that outwardly appear really great, and yet they might not be so great. And I suspect that this is the kind of guy we're talking about with the rich young ruler. And if we had people that came to our church and they came in the door and we welcomed them, we took them out to lunch and they started kind of listing some of their resume. Now, we don't require resumes for people to come in and volunteer. It's like, do you have two feet and two arms? Yes. You're in. But if somebody started listing all the good things they'd done in the, in the last couple of churches where they served and they said, oh, man, you know, I, I volunteered in the soup kitchen downtown. For some of the homeless folks, I would do that every Friday night in the good weather. And I've gone on 15 mission trips in the last 20 years. Uh, I donate to a clean water charity, and they dig wells in Kenya so that the villagers don't have to walk two miles to get dirty water. Um, I've served on the missions coordinating committee a couple of times. I served on the pastor search committee 16 years ago when we called our pastor. Uh, the decorating committee, which is why the church looks so good. And I even served a three-year hitch on the nursery rotating team. You think, wow, this person has got it going on. They are like the rich young ruler. They are happening. So many good things like that. Oh, and besides that, they've not just given their time and their talents. They've given their treasures too because they give 10% off the top. We're talking gross for tithe, not after taxes. And when we did a pledge drive to raise money for that new building, they gave a substantial gift to that as well. So this is exactly the kind, of part, the, the kind of part they need to play on our leadership team. We want to put them in charge. We want to put them as being the head of the board. Isn't that what churches do today? I mean, that's the kind of people we would think of, right? I'm not demeaning any of those things, but I'm saying there can be altruistic purposes or motives that come into play, but there can also be some other motives that sneak in there and I wonder if maybe this guy is playing with a couple of those sneaky, conflicting motives that are happening within his own heart, too. Jesus' impossible demand. This is something. Let's look at why Jesus says what he does. This is the kind of guy who does for Jesus what a lot of us do for God when we go to him with our requests. And so we can learn something from him. Jesus basically sends him packing. Gives them an impossible demand. So what's going on here? Well, if you're looking in on this conversation, 
like the disciples, and they kind of say this almost as much. They got, they're saying, well, wow, if this guy can't get in, who can? You're saying that it's almost impossible or it is impossible for rich people to get into heaven, and this guy's got it all going on. He's morally rich and materially rich. So what about us? But here's Jesus doing again what he does all through the Gospels. He's continually showing his disciples and through them, us, that the kingdom of God, this kingdom that's spiritual, that's not based on man-made rules, is vastly different from worldly governments and kingdoms. Vastly different. He's trying to show them that there's this huge juxtaposition that we can't buy into the way the world looks at the world. We've got to start looking at the kingdom of God the way God does. And instead, we keep trying to impose our own worldly ideas on that. That's hard for, for them to grasp. It's still hard for us to grasp. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can become morally pure, uh, excellent in all of the things that we do. We can own a good job. We can become a pillar in the community. And we can still miss some good stuff that God has in store for us. So why would this wealthy young man walk away sad or grieved? Sad's not really a strong enough word. I like the translations that use grieved, because I think that's true. Well, for one thing, he wasn't speaking with his idea of Jesus. He was talking to the real Jesus. What do I mean by that? He was having an actual conversation with the actual God incarnate, God who invented this whole thing called the kingdom of God, God who is the boss of everything. He's talking with that guy. He's not talking about the earthly Messiah who's supposed to come in and wipe out the Romans and put in a new government that's going to help them live prosperously according to their values. He's introducing a whole new value system to them, and some of it seems really topsy-turvy. So as we get to know the real Jesus, we discover, and this is a good sentence. I stole this from Pastor Tim Keller. Thank you, Tim. I'm giving you credit for it. We discover that when we know the real Jesus, he requires a lot more than we might have imagined. He requires a lot more than we might have imagined. And at the same time, he offers a lot more than we could have ever dreamed. Both are true. This is one way, in fact, that we can start to measure whether we're becoming mature in Christ, that we're growing in him. If we look back at the previous year, we can say, have I done anything that I felt was going to be, wow, God's called me to do this, but I think this is going to be hard. And you're a bit, a bit intimidated by that, and you think, I don't know if I can do this or not, but you, okay, God, here I go. If you can use a feeble person like me to do that, all right, I'm going to try it. And you do it, and as you're doing it, you're going, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But then you finish it and you go, oh, I see now. That was a lot more rewarding than I could have dreamed as well. And you'd say, well, give me an example. No, you give me one. Let me ask you some questions, and I'm sure you can think of one. Think of some time when you sensed that God was asking you to do something, and you did it. And as you were doing it, you thought, boy, ah, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But then you got through that season of doing what you said you were going to do, and you look back and you think, oh, man, I never dreamed there could be rewards like this. These are the best rewards I've ever had. Can you think of some time like that? Maybe it was a mission trip. I know some of our youth used to go on world changers trips all the time, and they'd be out in that hot sun roofing up on the house, the sun beating down on them, and they'd be going, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought. And then the homeowner would come out at the end, and they would give them dollar store gifts, 
and just shower their love on them and they think this is so much more rewarding than anything I thought possible. Or maybe it was a promise to read the Bible for at least 15 minutes a day and you'd get through Chronicles and think, why did I agree to do this? Good night. Or maybe it was something simple as going into the nursery rotation and you think, I'm going to just hug on babies once a month. And you think, this is really hard. These babies are squirmy. And they make smells that I hadn't smelled in a while. And yet you get done with that, and you get that smile and that hug, and they run up and, and hug your leg and say goodbye on your way out the door. And you think, oh, but this is so much more rewarding than I ever thought possible. You can just insert your own situation into this. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, I really think that plays out. Following the real Jesus means that he's going to expect a whole lot more out of us than we can imagine. Because it's not what the world offers. And yet it's going to be far more rewarding. So why so sad? Why is this guy so sad? Well, here's another reason. Jesus just obliterates this man's assumptions about religion. He doesn't just tweak it. He pulverizes this guy's misperceptions about the way religion is supposed to work. He smashes them. We see two assumptions in this man's interaction with Jesus. That Christianity is something you can add to your life and that Christianity is something you do. Both are wrong. Those are assumptions. They're still really very current. A lot of people think that, but they're both wrong. Why are they wrong? That's what I'm about to tell you. Everybody say, tell me. Okay, I'm about to tell you. Christianity is just something I can add to my life. I'm going to fill it out. I've been missing something. I can't figure out what it is. But, oh, man, that praise team is so good. I feel so uplifted. It's better than Xanax just to go to church on Sunday. It has rounded out my life. I feel like I'm complete now. Is that a correct, biblically, uh, a biblically correct assumption? No, not according to Jesus. Not at all. Guy comes up, what do I lack, he asks. And we're thinking the same thing. What do I lack? And so, yeah, it's going to be good. Church is good for you. I'm not saying don't go to church. I'm saying we should go to church. But here again, we get these mixed motives. And if somebody says, I'm doing it because it's better than Xanax, and I just feel better about life after I've heard that praise team sing, and then I've used the air in my lungs, and I go home, and I think, oh, man, I can take a good Sunday afternoon nap now, and my life is just better because I went to church. That's not what Jesus expects of us. He's consistently confronting our misperceptions about his identity and about the kingdom he came to establish. And here's one thing that people don't often appreciate. He says, you can't be neutral about me. You just can't. You can't be indifferent. You can't remain in a state of indifference when it comes to Jesus Christ. You can either accept his claims and submit to his lordship, or you can stomp off offended like so many people did when he would really get strong in his preaching and preach the hard stuff, but you can't remain on the fence. God said something about wanting to spew that lukewarm water out of his mouth. You can't remain lukewarm when it comes to Jesus. And that drives some people crazy. Why? Because they say, well, why would he do that if he's all about grace? If God is so loving, why would he keep pushing people to either accept him or reject him? Why can't we just remain neutral? Well, and I've thought, through, I've thought this through a little bit. My, I think, fleshly tainted first reaction is, well, for one thing, he's God, <laughs> and you're not. So he can basically do what he wants to. He writes the rules. We didn't. He did. And yet even that, as I think about it, is a sin-tainted 
statement. What do you mean by that? I'm meaning that it's saying, well, he's just another bully, but at least he's God the bully. He's the biggest bully around, and so we just have to do what this benevolent bully says that we're supposed to do. And that's missing the point of Jesus coming to earth and dying on a cross for us. It's missing the fact that he is perfectly holy, and therefore he's not a bully. He's telling us the only thing that will matter in your life that will last for eternity is me. You need me in your life. That's a good thing. So he's not telling you something because he's a bully. He's telling you something because he's trying to rescue you from sin and the consequences of sin. And when he's the only perfect being in the world, he's the only one who can say that and not be prideful about it. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around a God like that. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need to see what Jesus did for us. Because if we want to know what God is like, we have to look at the cross. He gave himself for us willingly so that we could escape all those negative consequences. So, Jesus' response to this wealthy guy is a way of saying, Christianity is not just another way to round out your life. Christ never said, Behold, I have come to give you a new coat of paint in the living room of your life and some new carpet. He never said that. He said, behold, I've come to give to make all things new. All things. And so he's coming to demolish the old life and rebuild a brand new life, which is why we just can't become neutral about him. We can't stay on the fence. Here's the second assumption that Jesus destroys with his response to this guy. Christianity is something you simply do. Other religions, most of them in fact, I think, basically say, do these things and you'll start making your way up the ladder toward heaven. It's all about doing, behavior. But Christianity is not something we do. You might say, yeah, but didn't you just read that passage where Jesus actually commands this guy, if he wants to get into the heaven, to go do something, meaning sell possessions? Yeah, but... He's telling the guy to do something that's impossible, and so we need to understand what he's doing through this hyperbolic statement again. Let's look at that. There should be something, I think, I would hope, kind of obvious in the thing he tells this guy to do. It's not that selling our possessions earns us a golden ticket. If that were true, we should all go home right now and sell all of our possessions and give everything to the poor. But Jesus knew this guy's heart specifically. He knew that that was the one thing selfishly that he was clinging to because of his greed that would keep him from getting into the kingdom of heaven because it was about making Jesus Lord in this new kingdom. So, what would have happened if this guy had one more question? What would have happened if this guy had said, well, Rabbi, how is that even possible? Or how is that going to help? And then Jesus could have started to explain that what he's really after is our heart. It's not the possessions there. Maybe he could have examined his heart and said, yeah, he's willing. He said, I'm off right now. I'm going to make my way to this guy that I know who's in uh, estate sales. And I'm going to have him put everything that I own up for sale. And Jesus probably could have said, cool. You can enter the kingdom of heaven because you're willing to do that. I couldn't even help but wonder if maybe that was a test similar to what God asked Abraham to do. Remember with Isaac? Go up onto the mountain, take your son with you, takes the son, takes the sticks to burn, takes the fire, takes the knife. Son says, where's the sacrifice? And at the last minute, God provides that substitute, which is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us, of course. And then 
It's like, okay, cool. I can't help but wonder if just maybe this guy was being given a test and he didn't pass the test because he walked away sad before he had a chance to even examine what Jesus meant by what he said to that. I wonder. I don't know that for sure. Those are all musings, but they're things that cause me to point the finger at myself and say, before I get really harsh on this guy, I need to start asking myself, yeah, but what about me? What do I still get greedy about? What are the things that matter so much to me that I can become conflicted in my motives because I'm really wanting these other people to see me a certain way? And maybe that was the case with this guy. Maybe it wasn't the material wealth so much. Maybe it was, oh, I will sell everything, but then people will think that I've sinned. So they won't think that I'm morally pure anymore. Which goes back to what he said at the very beginning. No one is good but God. Meaning that no matter how good we might have thought the guy was, he deserves hell just like everybody else. Because everybody is a sinner. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is good but God alone. Which is why it's not about earning our way. It's not about getting a reward because of our good works. It's all about grace. It, each person, it comes down to grace. So, what's my selfish desire? Maybe it's a, di- a desire for people to see us as being so humble that we can sort of, you know, humility. Yeah, I can fake that. Authenticity. Sure, I can fake that. There's weird stuff that goes on in our minds and in our hearts as we're trying to fake our way through and make people think of us in a different light. But I know the darkness of my own heart. I know that there's conflicting motives in there. So you've probably been thinking, if the Holy Spirit's doing what I think he can do through a word like this, you've probably been already thinking about some things that you're thinking, yeah, what are some areas in my life? I hope that's the case, because I hope that all of us manage to be open to what the Holy Spirit reveals to us so that we can recognize that in ourselves and then give that to him and say, God, I recognize this in myself. Please purify me of this. Continue to do your work of sanctification in my life. So here's the thing, though. Is Christianity something we can add? Jesus says, nope. Is it something we do? No. It's a lifestyle of just loving Jesus back because we can't pay him back. told you this years ago, but I love this story. There's a picture in my mind. My uh, next-door neighbor, his name was Paul Dean Harley. His last name was Harley. We should have just called him Harley. That would have been a good nickname, but we called him Petey for Paul Dean. And little Petey managed to gather up a whole bunch of free magazines from neighbors, and he put them in a wagon, and he scrawled this little sign and taped it to the side of the wagon, and he was hawking his magazines, going down the sidewalk, house to house, and he said, free magazines for sale. Free magazines for sale. And it finally took some adult to say, um, Petey, free and sale don't go together unlike some of the coupons that you'll see popping up in your <laughs> emails, you know, we're going to give you double coupon day as our gift to you. Wait, what? <laughs> if we spend money, we'll get double coupons, and that's our gift. I don't know, but that's kind of what he was doing. It was like free. No, it's not free, and you have to do this other thing too, and that's what people keep trying to do to Christianity, and it's not that. Free grace for sale doesn't work. It's not about free grace for sale. It's free. All we have to do is admit that. God, no one is good but you. I recognize that. I turn my life over to you. Turn me into a new creation. 
And help me to do that by constantly questioning my motives so that your Holy Spirit is purifying me so that I'm obeying you. And even though you ask me to do things that feel incredibly hard, I know that the rewards are far more than I can even dream, so I'm just going to walk in your way because I know it's the right way. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you've shown us that we don't lack anything if we have you. We don't lack anything. And I pray that we will go after you, that we'll lean into you as our Lord and Savior, that we'll recognize that all good gifts come from you and that we can't earn anything when it comes to the kingdom of God. Help us to see the real Jesus who describes and exemplifies what the real kingdom is like. We want to live as kingdom citizens, not as citizens of the world, even though we're in it. And we want to live in such a way that other people are attracted to the Christ in us. Not because we're faking our way through with mixed motives, but because we're genuinely, authentically just laying our lives down for you. And you keep picking us back up again and showing us what it means to live as a kingdom citizen. I pray we'll continue to do that. Thank you for all you do for us and give for us because our faith in you is really just our faith in your faithfulness. And I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.